listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hey, you're with Triple R Breakfasters, Steve, Alicia and Declan, and this is our podcast for March 30th to April the 2nd. Yes, this week I learnt that Alicia pranked her grandmother as a child. Her brother ran a backyard casino in his teenage years, and Alicia spent a lot of time playing Pac-Man on Google Maps. We also spoke to comedian Susie Youssef and Jen Kirkman. We spoke to Thomas Caldwell reviewing the film Listen Up Philip and Simon Knott talked about soft infrastructure. Melbourne Comedy Festival is in full swing and we're so grateful that Susie Youssef has swung by to see us. How are you, you Susie? I'm totally awake. I'm yeah. completely awake. <laughs> well, you've done your first hook turn in Melbourne. I have. I'm so excited. I know that that's a bit of an over-exaggeration. That probably doesn't warrant a tweet, but um, I did. I did one last night with my friends in the car. They guided me through it. And then this morning I got to do my own one. Did you get confused? Like, because... Um, uh, apparently the actual law is that you have to wait for it to change yellow before you move, even if, like, nothing is coming past you. But I think a lot of people go early on that <laughs> Yeah, I think I went a little bit early, so I think it started out rough. And I definitely looked at everyone and nodded at them around in the traffic, like, you know I'm doing this. And they were like, we don't we don't really care. And then I waited and I, uh, till the red did it. It was great. Just give them the fist pump as they're going. People on their morning commute who are gridlocked suddenly see this car burn around a oh, turn totally. with a fist out the window yeah, yeah, and just yeah. go, woo! And I, I bled simple mind, so it was a breakfast club <laughs> moment as well. It was really good. So you said you looked at them. But, uh, did you look at them with our eyes? I can't help it. That's the only eyes I've got in my head. They're our eyes. So this is the name of your comedy festival show. It is. It um, is. Where does the name derive from? Obviously your eyes. Uh, from my eyes a little bit. And also it's a, it's a bit of a pun about all eyes on you, which is um, the kind of theme of the show is that uh, we always feel like someone wiser is watching and that we're not doing things very well. And when I say we, I mean, that's how I feel <laughs> all the time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you've been described uh, oh, the hallmarks of a Tina Fey production, which is really good because you do a lot of character acting, don't you? Is there a lot of that in this show? Yeah, this is kind of half sketch, half stand-up. Last year was kind of more sketch than stand-up and now I'm moving more into that. I mean, I say stand-up, but it's kind of storytelling. I don't have any craft in the way that I tailor my jokes to the show or anything like that. And stand-up is a, is a pretty incredible craft. It's my, one of my favourite types of comedy. Um, but, yeah, Hallmarks of a Tina Fey production, that is high high praise and ridiculous. But thank you so much, <laughs> The Age, for saying that. Did you put that onto a T-shirt that you're now oh, wearing yeah. around? I, I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> um, right now. I read that same review and I always wonder how people feel when they get the, the – it was a very positive review that mm. was in The Age, actually extremely positive, and it had the Tina Fey line. It also had in it – I always wonder how people feel when they get lines like this. Yeah. Um, confident sexuality mixed with a raw insecurity. <laughs> Yeah, I felt quite strange about that line. And there was lots of, of chat about daggy dancing. And I was like, no, my dancing's really good. Why are you calling it da- daggy? We'll post a video online later. Yeah, you've yeah got I'm the sure moves. there's some, some good moves on, online. Is somewhere. it one of those things, often some people can think they're very awesome at dancing, but then the wider perception of the dancing What are you is, saying, No, I've never seen you dance. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. No, there's a, there is a weird moment, though, where you read. It's, it's such a nice review, and I was thrilled to get it. But then when you look a little bit deeper, you're like, 
so my insecurities are very rural, are they? And um, <laughs> I'm very sexual. I don't get it there. Yeah. Then, then you ring the newspaper review and you go, how raw are these insecurities, <laughs> mate? <laughs> well, your show was called Sketchual Chocolate, wasn't it? So that yeah. sounds a bit sexy, a bit raw. It does, but I thought it was more, I thought it was more of a nerdy reference to um, Eddie Murphy's band in Coming to America, mm-hmm. which about 12 people kind of nodded at me when I said it and the rest were like you need to learn how to spell sketch um (laughs) but yeah it was such a it was such a weird thing where I thought that that was a really funny joke but it was a bit niche how do you strike the balance uh, between stand-up and sketch comedy together in one show do you like lob off stage and put a wig on Lob off. Lob I, off. I can't really lob off in this um, particular venue, which is awesome. I love it, but uh, it's the games room at Acme, and uh, there's not um, not really a backstage. Well, there's a backstage area, but I'd have to open a door and go through a kitchen um, so that the wigs aren't readily accessible. Uh, it's lots of lighting changes, lots yep. of musical stings and stuff like that. I don't want to. I didn't want to spoil the mystique of the no. show there. <laughs> yeah. but I was just fascinated for my for myself. Yeah, I tried. I try to balance it with. Um, I start off with sketch and then I move into stand-up where I can say, it's really me, I'm not playing a character. Um, and they're all like, you're incredible. No, they're not. That's not the way like that. So you, you're playing in the games room at Acme. Yeah. Uh, what sort of uh, comedians play in all sorts of venues mm-hmm. in their lives? How does the games room fare in the sort of uh, pantheon of rooms you've played in? Well, it's a uh, raked seating. So by that I mean there's three steps that kids usually sit on to watch museum-based oh, entertainment wow. shows. Yeah. Um, and it's quite bright, which is very conducive to comedy. You'd like your audience to be able to see you. Um, it's actually turned out to be so much fun to do it. There's a real, like, you feel cheeky watching someone say, like, swear when you're sitting in a room where kids would usually do, like, dinosaur exhibitions and stuff. Um, I'm sure that's completely accurate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's it's very small, uh, which means, fingers crossed, we'll be selling out soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sell-out show. Yeah, we'll yeah. get the stickers ready to put just <laughs> on the poster for sell-out show. You never say it's 30 people. You no. never say it's raked seatings in a kid's games room. No. It's just a sell-out yeah. show. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait for that moment. That red sticker is like crack in Melbourne, by the way. <laughs> when you get that sold-out sticker, everyone just walks around going, I have to have it tomorrow night as well, like straight mm. away. <laughs> so who are some of your favourite characters in comedy? Um, I won't necessarily ask your favourite comedians, but some of your favourite characters over time. Um, who's my favourite characters? I think, uh, like, I, I pull a lot from, from sitcoms and stuff like that. So, like, the Parks and Recreation cast, their characters are incredible. Like, John Ralphio is one of the most disgusting human beings in the world. And, <laughs> like, it's he's just awesome. It's such a perfectly rounded character. Um, yeah, the, kind of more from the sitcom stuff than the... I, I mean, I love live characters, but I can't think of anything right now. No, but, but it's funny that you mentioned the Parks and Rec guy. Do you mind playing uncomfortable characters yourself? Oh, Does, yeah. yeah. That's so much fun. Because uncomfortable characters are just detached enough from yourself to be... So that you don't feel like it's going to uh, reflect badly on, on your own like image, um, but gross enough to be so much fun to play. I love that. Do you find in recent times, I think since The Office and a few of those English sitcoms, people have gone for sort of your more sort of rougher, meaner characters, but I always find the key with those great characters like Parks and Rec and even like, you know, a lot of the performers in 30 Rock, yeah, yeah. the key is to have that base of sort of vulnerability with them and totally. that's always what you've got to look for. Yeah, so the grosser the periphery characters are, the, the more the central 
characters shine. And I think that they've just nailed it. In Parks and Rec and 30 Rock, um, they've just totally nailed that. And so you completely fall in love with them um, because they've got all these, like, rat bags around them. And have you done the thing where you've taken, like, family members? Are they sort of amalgams of people that sort of annoy you or the people that oh, stand out for yeah, you? yeah, my poor family have absolutely <laughs> copped it. Like, last year and this year, I've just stretched their personalities to the edge and just made sure they sound pretty terrible. My mum actually cops at the worst. And she's not a bad woman, but she's pretty distracted, has been my whole childhood. Um, <laughs> and she really does cop it, yeah. And what was her response? Um, well, I mean, she doesn't hasn't seen the show yet, so we'll find out. Is she, is she distracted doing what? Um, sleeping mostly. Um, she falls asleep at the drop of a hat. And I, it actually hasn't gotten into the show, but this, there's one story of her um, at my school graduation and I won an award for leadership and my mum, who's a very devout Catholic woman, f- had fallen asleep and my dad nudged her to say, like, your daughter's just won an award and she woke up loudly praying the Hail Mary um, <laughs> and then stopped herself and went, oh, bless her, she's won an award and fell back to sleep. Oh, yep. that's, that's a tough one to come back from at school. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky I was graduating. <laughs> so all, all eyes will be on you. The show is our, our Eyes on You and it's Susie Youssef and it's on at the Acme Games Room on until the 19th of April. For more information, comedyfestival.com.au. Thanks so much for coming Thanks in. Thanks for having me. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. It's always great when we have Triple R historical making person with us, Simon Knott. <laughs> the architects. Oh, hardly, I think. I, yeah. The architects were groundbreaking radio. He actually, he actually makes history as well as being history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you. That's a great introduction. <laughs> Good to be here. I don't know if I quite uh, deserve that. But anyway, yes, there's lots of other people here who have made history at this station. Absolutely. But you're one of them, Simon oh, well, Knott. Thank you. And we're going to talk culture and specifically soft architecture and placemaking. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, this is uh, its a sort of slightly nebulous term, this one, placemaking, and uh, it means different things to different people, but I'll, I'll sort of try and... Because uh, in some ways it's actually a sort of pursuit and there are placemaking consultants out there, the people that sort of work in, in this field. But I think in, in a wider sense it's actually a sort of change in the way that we understand architecture and urban design and the way we practice it. And really can come down to the sort of planning design, but also the ongoing, and I think this is a really important part of it, ongoing management of public space. And um, and really, it's been around since the sort of 1970s or 1960s earlier and, and talks about, I'll, I'll come back to this, but sort of things about place identity, how we engender space with meaning and how we create communities. I think that would be the most important way to describe it. And really, it's a reaction against the sort of modernist planners of last century. And modernism came in and said, let's just go tabula rasa, we're going to just wipe everything out and we're going to build these great new clean cities. It's modern man. You know, we're on the path to kind of, you know, a better place and we don't need any of this kind of old stuff or this you know these slums let's get rid of them all and uh, a very important text in uh in the history of the world i would say uh a contend is uh one by a woman named jane jacobs a very important lady uh in new york and it's called the death and life of great american cities from 1961 and she was a great advocate um she was an activist in fact who fought against these sort of slum clearances and saved places like greenwich village i mean that was going to be cleared out and 
and sort of expressways put through and all this kind of modern infrastructure. And she said, actually, no, there's really good stuff here. And they protested and she was arrested and all this sort of stuff. And, and uh, they fought to to create to keep some of the fine-grained stuff of the city. And that really is kind of, you know, the things that start to... And it's not necessarily a heritage thing. It's actually just the sort of grittiness and, and sort of celebrate the kind of stuff that's not new that actually is part of a, uh, the, the, the way that we understand space and the way that it gives us meaning. Um, so, I mean, I guess for, for someone like me, I'm thinking about space and, and but, but what's, uh, how do we create spaces around things that perhaps are already sterile or, or mm. not conducive to uh, community? It's a good question and I think this is probably the sort of failing of a lot of the modernist architects in they thought that they could do everything, you know, where the, the architect is sort of God and everything's designed from sort of a, a kilometre up in the air. You do great plans like Canberra. Canberra's a great example where it's got these beautiful sort of drawn plans and it kind of works at sort of that level but actually the scale's all wrong and it's too big and you can't walk around so it's all about cars so um what what i think you know placemaking sort of recognizes is and i think i always use the example of fed square because i think it's a really good example of it where the architectures i mean i think okay people love it or hate it that doesn't really matter the space in the middle is kind of good and robust it's not the best architectural space in the world but it's managed better than any place in the world and it's regularly in the top 10 public spaces in the world because of the way that it's managed and that means you know the free Tai Chi classes at 7 o'clock in the morning, the homeless World Cup soccer, you know, protest marches there, you know, people jumping around on the big screen, you know, the camera, all that sort of stuff and all the kind of sculpture things that go on there and uh, events that happen there. And it's programmed 24 hours a day to make it like... So it's all the kind of... And that's why it's soft infrastructure. It's the stuff that kind of gets that planned in to actually make those things happen. And really good placemaking will start to put little seeds into a place that then allow the community to kind of, you know, to, to, to uh, join in and actually create the real you know the real meaning within that space and the idea of place so it's a kind of start it's, it's the seeds that kind of make uh, communities strong so what happened down at the docklands then well it's a good question because that is one of the examples <laughs> the opposite example of one of the failed um, the failed attempts at sort of making place and there's been a lot of discussion around that over the ensuing time about what what went wrong there and I think one of the biggest mistakes they made there was they Unlike Melbourne, when Melbourne was planned and the land sales uh, back at, you know, the uh, 18... uh, 30s, 40s, they just carved up little bits of land and gave them over in small parcels to a whole lot of different people. So it allowed the city to grow organically and lots of little things to happen. Whereas in Docklands, they gave over like nine hectares to one developer and said, you do something here. So it was kind of destined to fail at that sort of... It's just too big, you know, and it didn't... It doesn't have any of that small, fine-grained stuff. And I think really the sort of essence of placemaking is really... Um, and a lot of these people... Is a, I've got a book here called uh, by one of the pioneers in this kind of area is William White uh, called The Social Life of small urban spaces and what he did was actually go and start rather than sort of I know all the answers I'm going to plan this thing is actually go out and look he went out and he did his, there's a great photo on the back of it with his camera out he went and did all these studies of all these spaces and sort of said what's wrong here what do people need what is the what is the ways to make these and it was making little benches for people to sit on and comfortable spaces scales are really important thing greeneries are really important thing so people don't like to sit out in big open windswept spaces they feel quite uncomfortable so you know they want to sit in kind of intimate spaces Spaces, maybe with a back to a wall, uh, maybe with some greenery around them in the shade, out of the wind. You know, that's that's who we are as sort of animals. Is kind of what we what we need. So, um, you know, I think that kind of idea of um, of comfort and, and safety. And I think there's a there was a study that was just done in the states on 26 communities, and and the three things that were most valued in um, making good spaces were social initiatives, so things that actually give some sort of social benefit within that in that space, aesthetics, and uh, openness. Um, and that that was really there's a sort 
sort of safety kind of thing that comes into that as well. Um, and I think probably one of the, you know, Melbourne's very lucky in this respect because uh, another sort of pioneer in this is a guy named Jan Gell uh, from Copenhagen, from Denmark, who uh, wrote a book in 1971 called, wonderfully titled, called Life Between Buildings. Ooh. And he looked at all the space between buildings. Before that, architects just designed these things. I don't worry, it's just the street. And Rob Adams from the City of Melbourne really took this on board. And this was the start of the kind of regeneration of Melbourne CBD. And I, I lived in the city back in the in the 90s, early 90s, and there was kind of nothing that, you know, at nighttime it was dead, there was sort of nothing there. And what he did was just change some policy stuff at the start. They just said, let's encourage residents in here, this postcode 3000 thing, make it really easy for people to have residential, uh, you know, make houses in the city. So this had this influx of people coming into the city. And they did a great thing in DeGrave Street, the start of the laneways movement, with a um, group called Village Well, who are one of these placemaking groups. Uh, they said there's all these artists kind of around this space here, but none of them really kind of get together. They're sort of lacking a kind of sense of community. No one knows who they are. They're all sort of you know, faceless in these buildings. So they just closed off Flinders Lane down near DeGrave Street and had a party over a weekend. And suddenly all these people got together and they kind of realised they were all living there, started to kind of you know develop this sort of sense of community, and they put one good cafe operator into DeGrave Street and that was the kind of birth of the whole laneways movement so I was just kind of showing people you've got all this stuff here like just use it and and allowing people to giving them permission to use it and that you know really you know now 20 years later has got one of the probably the most you know noticeable and kind of iconic um, parts of Melbourne is the laneways so it's certainly one of the markers isn't it of the the livable cities around the yeah. world and but a lot of these places have kind of grown organically so how yes. does the architect uh, approach uh, not being like a little too clinical mm. about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one and it's really important because I think a lot of these people, um, you know, a lot of the kind of groups that talk about this that maybe talk about incremental change and it is very difficult and I think, and sometimes I think Docklands gets a little bit un unfairly criticised, although it's not great and I agree with that, but it's only really 15, 20 years old and it will take, it will, I'm confident in, you know, in our lifetimes it will be one of the great places in Melbourne, it will happen um, but yeah, you do need to sort of plant little things to change over time and that will, you know, the, um, the renew Newcastle is a great example of that. I mean, Marcus Westbury is quite well known for that of you know, taking unused shops and you know, in particularly in Newcastle that was you know pretty um, rundown sort of post-industrial town and a lot of vacant premises and and allowing you know artists and makers and other people to kind of use these spaces and it gradually has just shifted the way that the the city started to and that's you know it happens over years it doesn't happen uh, quickly but you can accelerate that change with the right types of things and and community if you get a community together and you galvanise as a community, you can make change happen relatively quickly. But it's it's never going to be me as an architect or a, or a planner doing that on their own. Uh, it's going to be a whole of uh, a whole of kind of community approach or a whole of state approach. Uh, you need to get governments involved. You need to get you know the local people involved. And and this goes on. And I might talk about this coming another time is um, the rise of kind of community engagement and what that means. Particularly in my life, you know, in 20 years I've been doing architecture, that has changed enormously into ways we understand what our communities uh, are looking for and actually going listening to them before we start designing don't go there and tell them what they need <laughs> actually listen to them you know and it sounds ridiculous that that's uh, a newish thing but uh it is actually uh you know it's, it's changing the face of the way we understand architecture and, and our public space uh what would you like to get your hands on 
What do you mean? Yeah, well, <laughs> just, just generally. Just generally. I don't know how to talk about them all here. Um, <laughs> no, uh, is there a space that you would like to work on uh, architecturally? Well, I mean, we're involved in a project at the moment which I'm really excited about around Jewel Station in Brunswick. And um, it was it's a dis, it's an old bit of VicTrack land. that they're, um, It's a partnership with VicTrack. It's um, Moreland City Council's heavily involved with it. We're working with Neo Metro, the developers, uh, and another architect, MA Architects, and, um, and also really good uh, glass uh, landscape. I should say. And so it's a really, it's a team approach, and there's a number of other people involved. But it's uh, it's redeveloping the whole precinct in front of the in front of the station. It's got a whole lot of social initiatives, uh, community cafes. Um uh, um, uh, uh, community gardens are being introduced there, playgrounds for children. So it's kind of introducing a whole lot of social enterprise, a whole uh, raft of things where RMIT across the road can come and get involved, art spaces, small little leasable spaces. So things that don't cost much for a developer to do, like you know, a four metre squared space can change the way a place works totally because some young person can come in and, and lease it out for a couple of months at very little cost and actually start a business there. Or So it's doing those little things that... Um, yeah, and I'm really excited about this project. It's about to go into planning now, and um, it's also got residents there as well. Um, but, yeah, over the next couple of years, how that might sort of change the face of a pretty grungy little area. Well, more train stations uh, need to be like that, I think. Thanks yes. so much for coming in and talking with us. Simon Knott, architect and uh, history maker. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. So excited to have in the studio Jen Kirkman, who's here for a show. I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. You may have obviously seen her on The Tonight Show with Jay Lennon, Leno, Lennon Conan O'Brien, John Oliver, of course, and uh, Drunk History, her podcast, I Seem Fun, or her tweets, uh, Jen, from the 90s, which is quite funny. Oh, I love that you love that you know <laughs> that. So oh, my God, funny. no one's ever mentioned that before. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm following that so welcome thank you melbourne i'm happy to be here yeah so tell us uh, a little bit about first of all maybe your podcast i love that you just sort of have an, about an hour and a half and mm-hmm. you're just discussing things like sushi and uh, why you don't <laughs> dig fish it used to be an hour long and now i can't i just can't stop talking but um yeah, so I have a podcast that I don't interview other people, it's just me. And I sit, usually in my bedroom, it just feels more comfortable. So I see it as like what I used to be like when I was a teenager, which was the only option I had was to sit alone by myself in my bedroom and either write notes to people because there's no internet, or sometimes I would just make tapes and talk into them, um, which, and then my friends and I would pass around tapes and we would tell stories. And so I think of it as that. And if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, I totally get it because it's just me talking off the top of my head for an hour about whatever happened that week. And it's quite intimate and and obviously funny in a lot of places and self-deprecating sometimes. But you do get into serious issues. Do you sort of plan it ahead or are you just talking from the top of your head? It's all from the top of my head. I'll make a list of what I want to talk about. And obviously I've been thinking about it. And a lot of the stuff is personal that has happened to me. So... I think everybody has details at the ready when, you know, if I were to ask you about whatever, sometime you had a breakup, you would have every detail ready there. You wouldn't have to plan it. Not that you've ever had one. But um, so, you know, stuff like that I will talk about, but it's easy. It just comes to me because it's my own life experience. It must be great training for, for be, doing monologues on stage, but how is it when all of a sudden you have an audience in front of you having not had one <laughs> in the room? Oh, I don't... That's easier because I... I never just get up and talk off the top of my head in front of an audience. Well, unless it's 
for a live taping of my podcast, mm. but usually I like that because I, I do like to hear where people are laughing or making other kinds of sounds like, oh, or something. Um, but in terms of just stand-up, Did that's I do that a, a, a different thing. Yeah. yeah, they just oh. go, whoa, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Oh. Now, the thing I'd love to ask you about is um, the drunk history um, yes. uh, videos that were started on Funny or Die and then moved to HBO and have become you know extremely popular. And I sort of saw them in the early days. Oh, thank you for um, thank you for doing that. Uh, well, it's, I mean, in the early days, it's obviously it's it's in some ways a bit more structured and streamlined now. In the early days, I mean, were you guys like? Did you expect it to blow up as big as it did? No, I mean, I didn't even. I was in some of the earliest ones, but I wasn't part of it. If that makes sense, it was all my friend Derek and his friend Jeremy running it. And no, I mean, the first one, they just came into my house with a camera and some wine. And then the next one, it got a little more serious. It kept getting picked up by different things. First Funny or Die, then HBO, then Comedy Central. So now it's this big corporate situation where they have to have a medic on set. Mm -hmm. They have to have someone giving a breathalyzer test. Um, They have to keep checking your alcohol levels, which I guess is smart. And so there's a lot more people there making it run and making sure you don't die or drive home. (laughs) And so the the first one, it was, yeah, they came over and then they left. I could have gotten up and just, you know, gotten in my cars. Not that I would have, but um, yeah, it was a lot more, uh, the the way you do it, the way you tell the stories and the way you drink has remained the same. Well, for people that haven't seen it, it's, it's, they get a series of actual historians to tell like favorite. No, they're all, none of them are historians. Just you sure, even the early ones, are you sure there wasn't? No, these few? are just comics you are guys really? don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no. That was It's it's all Derek's friends. Yeah. That's why it's a hard thing to... A lot of my friends say, how do I get booked on that? And I'm like, you have to be friends with Derek. It's like yeah. his actual close <laughs> friends because he doesn't want to deal with drunk people he doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's no... Most of them are writers, TV writers, um, stand-up comics. All of them are in the business somehow um, and friends of his. So they... None of us really knew any of these historical stories. Some of them we might have had in the early days. Yeah, yeah. You got to pick your own story. Yeah. So I'm sure one person has at least one historical story that they are passionate about. So that's the first round. And then now that it's on TV, they try to diversify it so they give you a story to, the, to do. The one on Rosa Parks just killed me. It was so yeah. funny. Um, but the, I, this would be great in classrooms if you could just learn your history from drunk history. I You'd be had, sorted. I have had people send me messages on Twitter saying that they show it in their college. People who are college professors saying, I showed this in my class. <laughs> like, maybe don't do that because I got some dates wrong and at one time I called uh, Abraham Lincoln President Clinton. That's so, right. yeah. That's right. But I think, I think they That's get the That's the whole gist. point of being drunk, though, surely. Yeah. You can't get all the facts right. Right, and they want you to, to say stupid things and, <laughs> and he, they try to steer you away from just reciting dates and names because it doesn't come off that interesting when you watch it reenacted on TV so it's mainly about your passion about what's happening. Is the irony of it that it's actually scrambled historical facts in your own mind yeah. from doing it? I think yeah. so. And there's yeah. a lot of dudes. So there's a lot of people in the 18th century saying, dude. Right. <laughs> I don't know how. It's sort of incongruous. Um, so you're going to die alone and you feel fine uh-huh. about it. Yeah. Well, no, I don't. I'm. <laughs> the subtext of this is like, hey, we should all just 
not worry about what's going to happen to us because it, it came off of, it's what I wanted to call, I wrote a book a couple years ago called I Can Barely Take Care of Myself about how I don't have children. And I wanted to call it, I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. But the publishing company thought that sounded a little harsh, which I agree with, I guess. And so you can only have death in the title on a book if it's like a spiritual book with like a smiling guy that's like, death is fun or like a little kid says they went to heaven. But, um, but so that's some, one of the things people would say to me if I didn't, about not having kids is, well, you might die alone. But I say, uh, most old people I know have died alone and they had kids. So mm-hmm. you just have to get used to the fact that there's no guarantees in life. So whatever you're doing now, don't think of it as an investment for the future, unless it's literally investing your money. Otherwise, you can't like plan how it's going to go. So it's stories about a million different things, but I thought that would be kind of a catchy title. As a female comic, are <laughs> uh-huh. you asked a lot about having children or how you juggle your life or any sex, <laughs> you know, sexist kind of uh, comments like that? Yes, but mostly people don't ask me about children um, or juggling my life because I guess there's nothing to juggle since I don't have them. But <laughs> cats. Uh, ca- no, no cats, no cats. People do assume I have cats a lot. Um, but I would say where people thought this title was about being single. And so when I tweeted out about it, I got a lot of comments like, you won't die alone. You're pretty. And, and uh, I'm like, oh, I'm telling a joke. Can I be funny? Like, if a guy tweeted that, no guy would write back like, don't worry about it, man. You're real handsome, you know? And so I think when you turn it around and put it that way, you realize not that there would be anything wrong with a man hitting on a man. But I mean, when a straight man would never say that to another straight man. So, um, but it's, it's been good. I haven't uh, received really any on the press circuit thank God, or else I would have probably lost my mind. <laughs> well, you have a remarkable sort of candor and honesty and almost in some ways a vulnerability to yeah. your um, comedy. And I remember reading a story earlier um, earlier on that your I think your parents saw you do it or your mum saw you do a gig on TV, which was a very candid sort of uh, sexual story. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, uh, it it may, may or may not have involved masturbation. And it then, did, yes. <laughs> how do your... I was trying to find a way to say that uh, but how do um how do your parents now feel about it now you know since so many of the things you've achieved well it's so funny because the this uh, newspaper in boston massachusetts the boston globe did an article about me years ago and i didn't know that they were interviewing my parents as well so their point of view was mixed in and when that article came out that was the first time i saw oh, well. that they saw that bit i knew they knew about it i mean i wasn't trying to hide it from them but i had no idea that in the article it said my dad got really upset and left the room and i had no idea so now I do that bit right in front of them and they've come to shows whenever I'm in town and they love it they're so into it they're they're I wish they were a little more unsupportive so I could have something to struggle against yeah. <laughs> because they, they think it's the greatest. They think I'm famous. It, it's They, they vacillate between thinking I'm extremely famous, which I am not, and then when I explain to them that I'm not, they get very upset. Why not? This is not fair. you know. So now they're just way overboard, way into it. Carl Cadone has a whole thing about how <laughs> it's really hard when your parents are supportive, and he said they've supported everything I did. Even when we started a punk band, when we were kids, my mum would come and say, who wants brownies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mom, this isn't Oh, I punk. didn't know that. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what my parents are like now. So for people that don't know uh, you in Melbourne, don't know you from your podcasts and your work on Chelsea Handler and uh-huh. um, comedy writing, what, what, will they, what will they get out of the show if they just pop along? Well, it's funny, but it's... Uh, <laughs> So they'll they'll definitely laugh. There's jokes, but it's sort of because it's more it seems more one woman showish in this festival. I've added a couple stories that I don't normally do in the states because uh, they, they have a little more depth to them. So they'll get stories about marriage, divorce, sex, life, getting old, 
I think it'll be funny and some weird, you know, family stuff. I think I, it's just a nice, well-rounded show. You've written a memoir, so any new books on the horizon? Yeah, I just finished my second book, and I think it's going to be called I Know What I'm Doing and Other Lies I Tell Myself. So that will be out um, next spring and hopefully in Australia as well. I'm thinking it will be. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll keep listeners posted about that. Jen Kirkman, I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. <laughs> She's on at the Melbourne Town Hall, the Cloak Room, uh, 7.15, Tuesdays to Saturday and Sunday, 6.15. For more information, obviously, go to the Melbourne Comedy website. And uh, thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. And it's a cool breeze blows through the doors and a dark shadow comes out and sits down. It will be talking film. He will be talking film. It is Thomas Caldwell and we're talking film. Listen Up Philip is the name of the film. How are you, I'm Thomas? very well. I'm just going to butt out this cigarette and put my gun back in its holster. <laughs> Excellent. I wish there was someone called Philip in the studio. Yeah. So just go, listen up, Philip. Yeah. <laughs> listen up. This is a, a film by a Brooklyn-based American filmmaker named Alex Ross Perry, who I wasn't familiar with, but I've done a little bit of research. It's his third film. This film, Listen Up Philip, is getting a, a, a season at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image from today through to the 26th of April. And they're going to screen his other two films as well. There's only a couple of screenings for that, so you'll have to go on the website to check it out. A film called Impolex and the Colour Wheel. He's done a film since as well, which premiered recently at the Berlin Film Festival, so hopefully it will come to our shores soon. And look, this guy, Alex Ross Perry... He's something of a hardcore cinephile. He, he's a young guy, but he's sort of got an older school attitude. He, you know, he claims to watch a film a day. Just based on this film, he seems to be very much influenced by the talky dramas of the new Hollywood era, especially Robert Altman and Woody Allen. I'd even say, it, I'd even say he goes further back to the films of John Cassavetes, who was um, mm-hmm. making independent American films as early as the late 1950s. You know, it has a grainy look. It's handheld camera old-school jazz soundtrack, even the font has a very old-school feel to it. And he shoots on 16mm, which is something that's starting to come back in vogue, actually, but most of his contemporaries over the past decade have all shot on digital because low-budget filmmaking, you know, that's what you do. You shoot the most, the, the cheapest way possible. But he's always used 16mm. And he's mentioned in interviews that his previous films have been inspired by novelists, particularly Thomas Pynchon and Philip Roth. Therefore, it's not too much out of left field that the protagonist of Listen Up, Philip is a brilliant young novelist who also hates doing publicity and is an unpleasant, short-tempered, arrogant, resentful and boastful bastard. (laughs) He's played by Jason Schwartzman, who nails his role. (laughs) I mean, I think saying you love Jason Schwartzman is a bit like saying you like coffee. I think it's sort of something a lot of people have in common. But he often plays far more quirky, likeable characters and it's great seeing him sink his teeth into someone so utterly contemptible. The film opens with him meeting up with an ex-girlfriend just so he can brag about his second novel um, and then tell her that he would have had success earlier if she wasn't holding him back. And then he, he feels all liberated by being able to say it as it is. So he gets in touch with his ex-college roommate just to basically chastise this guy for not making more out of his life like he has done. <laughs> so we are left with no doubt this is an unfair self selfish and cruel person. 
but he's so compelling. <laughs> he's so enjoyable to watch at the centre of a film. There's a real glee about somebody like this going into situations and just ruining everything because he's so unable to, to deal in any pleasantries. I mean, he even goes as far as he won't sleep with his literary groupies because he just believes that's beneath him. <laughs> you know, he doesn't wow. even do the bad things you would expect him to do. Um, and look, also, there's lots of joy when various characters do finally stand up to him and sort of serve it back. That's a lot of fun as well. Now, the, the main thrust of the story is we've got this guy, Philip. He's just published his second novel, and he's sort of fallen under the wing of an older novelist, a sort of mentor figure who's also successful and also self-pitying and self-absorbed and also a complete bastard. Uh, an older guy called Ike Zimmerman, who's played by Jonathan Price, a Welsh actor who I really, really yeah, like. You don't really see enough Love of him, him, do you? No. Yeah. You don't see him. I always um, identify with him with Brazil. He's mm. in Game of Thrones this season coming. So. That's I read right. that. Mm. I, I will be up to speed with Game of Thrones sometime in 2020, I think. <laughs> I, I have to start. He was great in Brazil, and uh, they made a movie adaption of Something Wicked This Way Comes, and he's fantastic in that as well. Yeah. Well, look, he's wonderful in this, playing, you know, just this, another horrible man, and, and he and Philip just mutually adore each other's writing and actually are really big fans of how selfish each other are. And so Zimmerman invites Philip to stay with him in his country house so they can go and work on their new novels and be completely indulgent. Um, but, of course, this is at the expense of other people in their lives. I mean, Ike's got an adult daughter named Melanie, played by Kristen Ritter, who I think people probably most know from the second series of Breaking Bad as, yep. mm-hmm. as Jesse's girlfriend in that. Uh, she's his daughter, and, yeah, she, she thought she had the house to herself, and he invites this miserable writer along. And also Philip's got a girlfriend, a, a woman named Ashley, who's a successful photographer played by... The brilliant Elizabeth Moss uh, from Mad Men Tower. Uh, top of the lake. Top of the lake, yeah. Mm. Um, you, you know, she thought that her and Philip may be finally getting to spend some time together. And, you know, this is classic Philip dialogue. He says to her, I hope this will be good for us, but especially for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my really kind of lazy way of describing this film is curb your enthusiasm meets with Null and I. Mm. So he's so hateable because, I mean, I think I know people like that. Yeah. Do, yeah and Do we get into the hate? Do we enjoy it or do we enjoy... He, the shout, get some schadenfreude for him uh, making mistakes? or Look, a little bit of both. There's no sort of huge dramatic downfall for him, but we realise this is a character who is miserable, who will never be happy. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some interesting observations. I mean, at the very basic level, you know, the fact that a successful writer is not a wealthy, famous person, I mean, that doesn't happen to, to many writers at all. And, you know, he still has to do things like teach writing class. Um, uh, it looks at how men like this are really resentful of women in their lives, especially Ashley. You know, she's starting to become a successful photographer. Uh, He kind of hates that. Uh, He expects her to make sacrifices for his career but won't do it the other way around. And there's a lot of really recognisable behaviour in this. And um, the more I think about it, the more alarming it is. Because I think they've kind of captured the way certain men behave, not... You know how there's been the not all men kind of hashtag on Twitter oh, yeah. when there's been discussion about male violence and a lot of men mm-hmm. have said, well, I've never hit somebody. I'm, I've got nothing to do with the patriarchy. Therefore, I'm a it good doesn't guy. happen. Yeah. I think this film looks at the more kind of insidious ways that men, that male privilege does work. That's and great. male entitlement runs rampant. And th- these are all thoughts that have happened to me since seeing the film, actually. Um, 
that this is a man who just really expects everything to go his way. It's the same with Ike. And, and these are men who blame women for all their misery, even though it is so clear they've brought all the misery on themselves. And they probably wouldn't have had the success that they had if it wasn't for these supportive women in their lives. They're these supportive women who had no right supporting them, but nevertheless did because of you know, the complicated feelings of love and, and, and attraction. So it explores that d- dynamic, and it's not at all preachy. Like I said, that these kind of observations are one I've, I've had since the film. But, yeah, look, it, it, you know, this is a film that says that success doesn't deliver happiness, and successful people can be utterly terrible people. Um, in fact, being terrible people probably contributes to why they are so successful. Um, interestingly, is Philip is very much the protagonist, but there are moments where the film completely leaves him behind and starts to follow some of the other characters. And it actually is a massive relief to get this dick out of the film and, and focus on some of the people we like a lot more. Especially this what out of the film? This, this, this unpleasant person. Right. Um, after, so when Philip goes to his sort of little writer's retreat, the film follows Ashley for a while and you know, looks at how she attempts to reconcile her really mixed feelings about him. And, that, and Elizabeth Moss, I think, steals the film in the handful of scenes she gets, especially when she's on her own. Just the way she kind of delivers that emotional roller coaster that comes from being drawn to somebody that you're also so incredibly repulsed by. My <laughs> mind jumps when you talk about sort of a slightly cynical portrayal of writers, um, people teaching writing classes. My mind jumps to Wonder Boys, the adaptation of the uh, Michael Charbon novel that also, I remember watching it as I was deciding to be a writer and thinking, oh, do you have to be a complete a-hole <laughs> to be a writer? Is it? The, do, you, do you think it's, obviously without giving it away, is it a wholly negative portrayal of that sort of lifestyle and career? I think or it's that a, type of man. Yeah, I think it's a negative portrayal of that type of man because the contrast is his, his girlfriend, Ashley, who is becoming very successful in her career as a photographer and she doesn't display any of the behaviour that he does. But, you know, it, it sort of looks at how there is a whole kind of almost industry that endorses and supports that behaviour as part of the writerly mystique and I suppose that's the, um, the figure of this Ike character who is sort of the older the older mentor who has who has had success and some money has also come his way from the success and he just completely endorses this terrible behaviour but um, yeah, there's, there's no great change of heart or sort of sudden burst of, of happiness or re- redemption or self-realisation in this film and I think that's that's part of, the, part of the strength. I mean, these people don't learn anything. Well, that's really interesting because Philip Roth does that so well in mm-hmm. his stories and people like Raymond Carver, the whole way, the character won't change, but we have changed by reading it. We're more annoyed. We're more uh, prone to recognise it in our real life. So I love that that's happened to you. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a huge downfall for him, but you just realise that th- th- this guy is going to be miserable for the rest of his life. <laughs> Did you change by watching this movie, Tom? <laughs> I like to think that some of the bad behaviour displayed in this film was stuff I've dealt with maybe several, several years ago. (laughs) Maybe a couple of weeks ago. I I, I do hope that... Look, I think it's always good to get wake-up calls through pieces of art like this about the very worst of human nature, especially those aspects that I think we all have the ability to indulge in. So I think it's always good to be confronted with that, uh, just to to remind yourself not to be a dick. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to leave Thomas on that comment. Thomas Caldwell and the film is Listen Up, Philip. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.